morning and the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. Many Americans, I think, feel that way. Deja vu. Welcome to Cut to Black, a Soprano sit-down. My name is Jim Scampoli, and I've seen every single episode of The Sopranos. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I've read the script of The Sopranos pilot. Yes, that's right. We're doing something different. And what if that iconic line we just heard started, actually, with, well, I once heard uh, some guy use this expression, the sun setting over the empire? That's was a line that was supposed to be at the start of that. I They cut ah, it. It makes sense. Um, yeah, so a lot of those interesting kind of tidbits. What we're actually kind of doing this time is reviewing the Sopranos script book created by David Chase. Or it says created by David Chase on the cover, but I don't know how much that is like, hey, the Sopranos are created by David Chase. <laughs> Though, uh, yeah, either so, way. Um, well, I wanted to say, because um, this is our third discussion on the pilot. We did, uh, I mean, obviously yeah. our first episode, we did the pilot, and then we revisited the pilot before we got into the series finale. Uh, we had a nice little, like, refresher course there, because that was on Jacob's first watch through. So we kind of discussed it in the context of only one episode left, and we revisited it again. And then, uh, what's the backstory? You stumbled upon this in, a, like a like a like, a used bookstore, or what was it? Yeah, followers of at shows what you know on Twitter, that's you the letter you, uh, will have seen that in Dublin charity shops, I just stumble across weird Sopranos things, <laughs> like regularly. Um, I've, some of you may have seen, uh, like, cutouts from a magazine of the Sopranos characters uh, that someone had framed from, like, yeah, 2001 or something like that, just from, like, the Irish Times. There was some articles about the Sopranos that someone had cut out and framed, um, which is great. Uh, and that's also where I found this in another random charity shop, the Sopranos script book, which did come out in 2001. Um, and it is essentially what it says on the tin. It is six episodes selected because, uh, well, I'll, I'll get into why they're selected in a second. Um, but six episodes, uh, the pilot being the first one. Also in here is College from season one, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti from season one, The Happy Wanderer from season two, <laughs> The Knight in White Satin Armor from season two, and uh, Proshai Livushka uh, from season three. Um, so six episodes in total. Yeah, because I was just looking it up because, yeah, season three premiered in March of 2001. So, yeah, it must have been shortly after the season three finale. I imagine if it has a script from season three in there because that ended in yeah, May. That... So, I mean, that was I think I've, I've mentioned this before in my 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 own Sopranos quest uh, in my life is that. I did pick up on it. Like, it's a show I'd always heard about, but I didn't get a chance to watch because, of course, we didn't have streaming and on-demand. And uh, But, uh, like, season two, season two had been over, and I had heard, all like, you always hear about The Sopranos, and I just started watching season three uh, to just, like, oh, I got to check the show out because it's like, oh, and then maybe I'll get these DVDs that are, like, a 100 plus dollars for a season and catch up later 
is that type of shit. That's how old I am. But yeah, I do feel like that was, I mean, Sopranos always had buzz, like even from the jump. But season three really is when everything started kicking in and it's like you couldn't escape it. Like if you had somehow not watched it before, by the time season three premiered or finished, everyone was trying to check out The Sopranos. So it makes sense. Yeah, which exactly. Yeah, it makes sense that this would be coming out around this time. Like no one after season one of any TV show, there's very few shows that would have the fan like draw for them to need to or see a reason to publish uh, parts of the scripts. Um, so it is it is kind of just the scripts uh, in the book with one short introduction written by David Chase uh, that I did want to go through and, and pull some bits from. Probably stuff that you are already familiar with having, having read stuff like the Soprano Sessions and things like that. Um, but it's kind of very factual on just kind of some of the early production of the show, uh, talking about how he was asked to make a TV version of The Godfather, and he wasn't interested in that suggestion, but it triggered this idea uh, based on his own psychotherapy. Had you not heard that? No, I actually hadn't heard that, but I like the timing-wise, because here we don't necessarily have a Godfather TV show, but we have a Godfather TV show, if you catch my meaning right now, because... The offer, if you're not aware, is currently on. What is it on? Peacock, Paramount, Paramount Plus, Plus. because because it's all a big jerk off for Paramount. But we'll yes. get into that when we talk about yeah. the offer in a different episode. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of it's just fun that right now that is a thing that exists that exists in a way. Yeah, so according to this, I mean, and it's David Chase saying this, that in 96, Lloyd Brown, um, an executive at uh, Brillestein Grey Entertainment, asked him about doing a TV version of The Godfather. And that's kind of what led to all of this. And he talks a little bit in this intro about, like, how, like, he picked up details about mob guys growing up in, in uh, as an Italian-American kid and, like, in... North Caldwell, which is also the same town where Tony Soprano lives. Um, And, you know, he says, I've picked up details about mob guys, how they talk, what they value from many sources. And a fair portion of my education came from movies and from the books, but particularly from local newspapers I devoured. So kind of picking it up, not just through, I don't know, uh, the film, uh, the film version of mobsters, but also like reading in the news. There's also like some connections with, um, uh, he he mentions about like slight connections through to, to a contact in the DEA's office who prosecuted mobsters. Like just giving a bit more concrete detail on that sort what, of thing. What I love about that, and this comes up every now and then, is he did the thing. That, at least in my world, people say should happen more. And it's something I've mentioned that they should do. Because especially nowadays, even more so with so many remakes and reboots and whatnot, a lot of times it's like someone will remake something. Like, for whatever reason, what always pops in my head is Total Recall. Like, they did a remake of Total Recall with Colin Farrell. But, I mean, I don't even seen that remake. But from what I've heard, it's like not Total Recall. So... Why not just be like, hey, I like Total Recall. I'm going to make my own Total Recall. And then you make your own thing. Because famously, you know, George Lucas did that for Star Wars. Like, I don't even think it was a choice initially. It was like he wanted to do, uh, what is it? Fucking like Buck Rogers or some some shit like that. It's a bullshit. But it, it was a thing he couldn't remake. And then he made Star Wars. Flash Gordon? Flash, that's what it was. I don't fuck Rogers. Uh, so, yeah. And then, you know, you have David Chase here being like, 
no, I don't want to do a Godfather show because I, I, again, I mean, I, I, I like to think of myself as an expert in the school of Chase, uh, where <laughs> I, I, I could see that he would, he would decline that, not just because it's totally not a thing he'd want to do anyways, but also he wouldn't want the pressure of like being like oh because now all that's going to happen is you're going to compare this to the godfather movies like clearly and not only does he not want to give the audience what they think they want but he also doesn't want to have to deal with uh everyone talking about the godfather to him and bringing up francis ford coppola and all that other bullshit so he's like well i could do my own take on the italian family so i i actually am not familiar with that detail so i love to hear it cool yeah um and well, did you know that Tony was originally meant to be Tommy Soprano? <laughs> that I didn't know either. Damn. Okay, so yeah, okay, we're we're hitting gold, nuggets of gold here. He says perhaps an unconscious homage to the character Tom Powers, played by James Cagney, in one of my favorite films. Which one? The Public Enemy, which, we which did we've discuss. also yep. yeah, which is also one of Tony's favorite films. He says coincidentally, um, and yeah, we've discussed it here on the podcast in a in a whole episode if you search the archives. Um, but apparently, they couldn't get clearance for the name of Tommy Soprano. I don't <laughs> know exactly God. what that means. And he, they agreed, and it was with disappointment that he agreed on Tony. And he does say, now, of course, I can't imagine Tony's character with any other name. Tommy seems ridiculous. <laughs> totally seems ridiculous. He does mention um, the public enemy as well in Soprano Sessions when they're discussing, they're discussing just season one in general and, like, yeah, his kind of take on uh, the gangster film. Um, and he mentions a lot about... He would watch uh, The Untouchables with his dad every week, which I'm not even familiar with that show. I mean, I know of the movie, uh, but he said even before that, yes, Public Enemy was like his favorite thing. And he, he mentions that the uh, mother in that looked like exactly like his grandmother. Uh, mm. And of course, like, I mean, it, the, the mother relationship relationships important in the public enemy and of course it's important in the sopranos so uh i'd love to see that being referenced again as well well actually on that um he also talks a bit about how the inspiration came from other characters so including livia and he says that uh, many of livia's gestures facial expressions and dialogue are exactly as i remember my mother talking and behaving yeah um and talks about how uh uh, one former therapist of uh, his tried to explain the reasons uh, for his mother's behavior through borderline uh, personality disorder, um, which, you know, sounds like Livia for sure. Um, but also he says, I'm not sure if it was ever my mother's intention, uh, but she was in retrospect, a very funny woman, perhaps knowingly. Um, so, <laughs> He, this is kind of fun because in the first few episodes, I remember how we were talking a lot about the comedy of the Sopranos, which is something that I think surprised Una as well as we started re uh, as we started watching it. Um, you don't expect it to be like to have so many funny moments uh, yeah. interspersed there, and even like a lot of Livia's cutting lines and everything. Like she's very annoying because we. Uh, <laughs> perverse as we are we love tony and so and he, she's constantly hurting tony but she's still also very funny a lot of the time same with junior and well the, the cast more broadly um so i just thought that was interesting as a call out well yes even in just the pilot here she's hilarious her first scene is so funny and i think we've i think i've mentioned in the past like even as we were getting up to the last episode 
The Sopranos is so good at old people. Uh, but And I think that's also something Vince Gilligan picked up really well with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Like, it's, there's just a way to nail the kind of aloof older person. But it's... Yeah. They're also... I think it's important, like, like we were just saying that he mentioned, there's like... There's a subtlety of they're in on it that makes sets it apart from just it's not just the standard joke of like oh this is an old person who's an idiot. There's this there's this small feeling that maybe they kind of get the joke a bit and they're almost playing it up, but then they also oh. completely don't. So I, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and let's see. The, I, I did want to ask as well, did you know that basically the audition process uh, for The Sopranos, it drives some of the inspiration? So like Tony Serico, who obviously p plays Polly, uh, he read for the roles of Big Pussy and Uncle Junior, but the character of Polly Walnuts did not exist at that point. It was kind of his performance that inspired the creation of Polly Walnuts for him. That's great. No, I didn't know that either. It's so funny, though, to, though, to think that he, you know... It's such. It feels Could like such junior. a yeah, like a, such a wide spectrum. Like, like he's got. I guess he's like, hey, I'll try for it all. Whatever. I guess I could do it. I'm an older. I'm an older yeah. gentleman. Um, but yeah. and, and it's weird because you hear that about so many. Um, I mean, of course, I'm like spacing right now on other ones, but so many like classic characters. You hear those like a similar story like that of like. You know, oh, they came in for this part, and we just like them so much. We we didn't picture them in that part, so it's either we we push we put them in this uh, role, or like you hear about it more times than not. Like, oh, we just kind of created a character around around this performance, and it's so weird because obviously, I don't have uh, a career in the industry, but it's got to be. It's such a it's it's a bizarre thing to for me to think of where like you're in the room and the guy like leaves or whatever and you're David Chase or even you're just a casting person or a writer like someone from the writers room and you're like yeah maybe we could do something with that guy what if we have a and then all of a sudden you're just like spitballing fucking yeah you know he was doing this and that reminds me of a character like this and maybe we can have an angle and especially looking at the pilot because you know obviously he's not a huge part of it he's there uh but like it's just it's just fun to see how these little seeds uh, that were planted and and even the people writing it clearly didn't quite know yet what was gonna grow. But it just ends up being like a fucking classic historical memorable character. Yeah, and essentially his just audition willed that into existence. <clears throat> yes. You know, like and they it just created that character out of him rather than the other way around. You know, uh, great stuff. Um, so yeah, some other inspirations uh, for names. So uh, Carmela was just a cousin of his. Was married to a woman named Carmela. He liked the name. Uh, Doctor Melfi. I've heard that um, one, the Carmela one. But yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, have you heard the Melfi is named after Teresa Melfi, his paternal grandmother? I did not know that. No. Mm. And then Meadow is, I think the point of this is just kind of picking up things from here and there when you like them. He describes how he uh, 
years before working on the series, him and his wife were having lunch uh, at a coffee shop slash florist and a young waitress was wearing a name tag with Meadow on it. And he just remarked that how unusual the name was and sort of mentally filed it away. And that's where the name Meadow came from, from some random waitress. Um, I, but as far as so, sorry, I was going to say go. on names, I'm sure he doesn't mention it here, but I'm I'm still fascinated with the fact that in this pilot, he decided to have two characters named Pussy, and <laughs> I feel like he on, it's only there so they can have that joke where he's like, "You think he's going to come after my pussy? Like <laughs> Pussy Bob and Sarah? You think he's going to come after my pussy? Like I feel like that's the only reason it's there because they kind of have that joke." I think it's great, and I think um, I think it is also like kind of a joke about how weird nicknames are yeah. in like mob culture. That it's kind of dumb, like Polly Walnuts, uh, but also like there's two guys called Pussy, and and the fact that they could be mixed up. But I wanted to read you. I'm gonna take various excerpts from the script, and we can go through them in a little mm-hmm. bit. But one to jump to right away is it's really fascinating, right? Uh, reading the uh, sort of scene. Descriptions, the you know the stuff that isn't dialogue because obviously most of it's dialogue. But in the scene where uh, Big Pussy is in it, it sort of describes it. Uh, they're at the pork store, uh, listing out their names. Uh, you know, a, uh, a large man, Big Pussy, Bump and Cero, Peter, Polly Walnuts, Gildieri, and trash hauling company owner Dick Barone, a young butcher in a bloodstained apron, serves espresso. And then it says this in the actual like text: Big Pussy, Bump and Cero should not be confused with Little Pussy Malanga. Of <laughs> Whom we shall learn more shortly. <laughs> it's so funny because I I imagine I feel like this had to have happened. Is that maybe not the first note, but at a certain point, someone probably made a note and they're like, "Look, we can't have two characters named Pussy in the first episode because we're already like the audience is already trying to learn who these characters are. You can't just have two characters with the same name." And of course, David Chase was like fuck you <laughs> fuck off <laughs> i'm having two characters named pussy and that's the end of it yeah um so uh let's see i wanted to talk about also like the six scripts why they were selected the way he describes it um they each represent and deal with different aspect of the show college is the one that comes closest to achieving my personal goal of making episodes that could have been made a standalone feature film um, it is self-contained mm. and it also talks about he, he talks about the pilot saying you know it's obviously laying the groundwork it's the only episode that uses voice over um, in the pilot some uh, excisions so well some some things were taken out both uh, scenes and dialogue due to time constraints while others such as Meadows' teenage martyr fantasy being burned at the stake just didn't work so I'll read that to you in <laughs> oh, a bit wow. but there is a scene where Meadow has a weird fantasy where she's being burned at the stake. There's two scenes that are like actual proper scenes that are taken out. Um, and then all of the rest is just kind of, some of them are start later or earlier or just cut lines. I think, I feel like a lot of the descriptions would be like, Melfi says yes or whatever. And instead it's like a look or like Tony winking at people. But instead it's it's simpler than that. You know, they they they're a bit more subtle in the execution than in the script to be honest because probably on the page you need to communicate what are these people's relationships how do you do that quickly as say they wink at each other whereas in in this it's a uh, yeah you know they do they do things a bit more subtly in the actual execution mm, yeah and uh i mean cuz i was just it started making me think about cuz this is long like a longer episode than i remember like it is like 
almost like exactly an hour or something like that oh it's it's like exactly an hour because it could only be 60 minutes like mm. they that's and you can see it's like 59 minutes 59 seconds basically or like an hour and and, and two <coughs> seconds or something because they've cut it like to the bone right or to, to get yeah. the most important stuff and i think what it happens in the script as well there's a few more scenes with melfi kind of or it sticks with a storyline for in the in the actual show it sticks with a storyline for longer to kind of get momentum and movement whereas i think in the script the way it was written not to a large degree but it kind of jumps around a bit more and kind of implies that maybe more time has passed or whatever it it feels like the pilot is trying to do too much in a way like it's a very good text but just with a couple of things there's one of the deleted scenes that they've kind of repurposed for later in the season because the characters just weren't at that point yet you know mm, okay well and one thing uh well actually a couple things here i saw this recently on social media and i don't know if this is a common feeling but i feel like it was kind of a viral tweet that people were agreeing with where people were saying how the pilot is the worst episode of The Sopranos. And then mm. re-watching it here, I feel like that's so fucking insane to think <laughs> because it's yeah. such a good pilot. And I get it. Like, there's things like Tony talks different. He looks a little different. He's, like, more svelte. Uh, but his voice is a little different. There's, you know, people bring up the voiceover, wh whatever. Like... You know, I guess structurally some things are a little different because they were still like f obviously figuring that out because, I mean, it was a pilot and then it didn't go to series for like a year or whatever it was until they finally went into production to make a full season. But rewatching it, I mean, just on stuff that is mined from the pilot alone throughout the series, even to like the, almost the last episode shows like carmilla's carmilla saying that he's gonna go to hell yes. like coming up four seasons later <laughs> yes it just shows how good it is because like there's a few things i mean obviously the varsity athlete the retirement community <laughs> yeah going to hell when you die gary cooper the strong silent type semester and a half at college like all these little like characterizations and just things little they i mean i'm sure Chase was always strong in how these characters were, but I don't know if they really understood some of the stuff they were going to reference back and really mine from just the pilot alone. Uh, and I get it. I'm, I'm sure that the thought is even, even by saying it's the worst episode, they're not like actually saying it's bad. It's one of those things of like, even the greatest show, one episode has to be like the worst in comparison to the rest. It's still an amazing episode, but I don't know. Just rewatching it, it just that stuck in my head. I don't know how common of a thought that is, but it, to me, it's just insane. It's it's crazy. Have they seen the Christopher Columbus episode? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's a common one that comes up a lot. Uh, I, which again, I don't. Uh, that's how I feel about it. It's like what you were saying. It's it's still uh, an episode of a very good show, so it's a good thing. But it's also like should have been Polly. hashtag it should have been Polly. we've been through it oh, yeah. um but i think one of the reasons it feels different just like what you said obviously when you start the episode you see tony sitting uh in the waiting room he just looks different which is yeah. uh funny um but more than that it's also like it's a pilot right so some differences were like it was shot on location where like all later episodes all the interior house scenes were uh on a set in queens mm. uh silver cup studios so obviously like after the pilot was picked up they could afford to build sets it, it just means 
that it's I think I think they actually use it quite well so you know when he's going out to the ducks and bring the kids are coming out to the ducks and they're in and out like if you think about it in later episodes we usually see an interior then someone exits we see them exit through the exterior we don't necessarily see the the movement as much because it's on a set the interior yeah uh, but anyway all of that adds to a certain feel uh for this episode and honestly like there's a maybe a couple of lines where I uh, that aren't so good that have been cut uh so we can get into some of those but in regards to what you were saying about referencing back stuff um he talks briefly about the sopranos writing process and says that before meeting with the writers he outlines uh some of the story arcs and milestones for the season uh but they're not bound by them yeah. um he says that getting the final script is a fluid and organic process and script changes are made up until the end even during shooting uh, before starting a season, I don't consciously think, for example, oh, this season is going to be about Tony and his dysfunctional relationship with his mother. However, after the first season was finished, that was the theme that emerged. Um, and he also says, I believe the main theme of season two is essentially plateau therapy and describes that a bit as well. But it, in short, um, kind of similar to Breaking Bad, right? Uh, if you listen to the Breaking Bad Insider podcast of how they make the show, it's clear that they don't have everything planned out in advance. It's mm. more just like these shows where they're willing to, I don't know, I, I, I think saying that something is either character dri driven or plot driven is really kind of reductive, like it's too simplistic, really. And all stories are kind of character driven if they're well written. Um, but I do feel like if we compare it to, say, Game of Thrones, it feels very much in Game of Thrones that because they had the outline from, like, the book, that they were like, right, in episode four, this needs to happen. Now yeah. we figure out how to get the characters there. And sometimes it feels a bit rushed and, and the logic doesn't quite add up. So in contrast, it's not even from the start, like, we know exactly which deep themes we're going to get into. We know which lines from the pilot are going to come back up again seasons later. No, you're just kind of following the story and maybe even creating a new character like Polly Walnuts along the way <laughs> as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And to back it up a little bit, we're talking about like the locations and like how obviously with the Sopranos Jersey is a huge part of it. Um, Cause I, when I was watching this episode, I noticed how Tony's wearing Tony and Carmela at, at one point in scenes are wearing Boonton country club shirts and I was I was like, what is that? And I looked it up and it's just like it's just like a, a town or whatever in Jersey or city part of Jersey. And Chase lived there for a little bit when he was younger. And I guess it's even like one of the schools that Chris references when he's talking to the Czechoslovakian guy. And then it's later used again as the where the projects are that Jackie Jr. hides out. But that people on Reddit are like. There's no projects in Putin. That's where all the rich people live. So that's a big thing. But either way, in March of uh, 1999, New York Times did have an article just about like the Sopranos tunes into a New Jersey. Nobody knows. Um, and how like just unique it was that it was Jersey wasn't a place you just go through or make a joke about. It was a it was mm -hmm. a, an actual setting or even an extra character, if you will. But uh, Chase does talk about um you know, David Chase, he lives in Los Angeles now, but he's a Jersey guy. And he tells a cautionary tale about how the first network to consider the show, they said, like, oh, so you're going to fake L.A. for Jersey. And he's like, no, I want to shoot in New Jersey. And they're like, oh, 
how about you shoot the pilot in New Jersey and then we bring it back to L.A. and do a week every five weeks back east for exteriors. They all looked at me like I was pathetic. Obviously dreaming, Chase said. It was never going to happen. In the back of the mind, I sort of knew it was never going to happen. But then HBO, our savior. Uh, the director of programming, Chris Albrecht, says, so it's going to be shot in New Jersey, right? You're going to get New Jersey, right? And I said, absolutely, you bet. Um, and it's not just that Chris loves New Jersey, but he wanted the show to look distinctive. He felt like if I had bothered to write it that way, it must have some meaning. We're going to get New Jersey right, which led to a discussion of how the show would look. These days, movies and television series shoot for less in Canada, which is, I mean, that's still a thing uh, today. It's either like Canada or Atlanta. Uh, like every Marvel movie is in Atlanta, uh, if, yeah. you don't, if you're not aware of this. So when you're in Wakanda, you're actually in Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> Toronto's been a generic stand-in for Chicago, New York, and all the suburbs in between. Uh, Mr. Chase believes that that wouldn't have worked for The Sopranos. I've shot in Toronto, he said. It isn't New Jersey. It looks different, and that's the end of the story. There's no downtown Jersey City in Toronto. There's no collision of Hispanic, Italian, or black around 1890s brownstones in Toronto. Uh, these are small, unimportant details, but not to me. Uh, of course, not every scene can be shot in New Jersey. Most interiors are filmed in a studio in Queens. You had mentioned that. Um, but it even goes to the point where Chase talks about how, like, he made a rule that even when they're shooting, like, say they're shooting on the studio in Queens, there's a guideline of, like, you can't then sneak a shot across the street for a storefront or whatever and, and pretend you're in Jersey. Like, you have mm. to go back to Jersey. Because he's like, I made it a rule. Let's suppose you have half a day on the stage, and then you have a scene that takes place in a field where they shoot a guy. If you have a parking lot across the street, you can change the field to the lot, and you don't have to move the entire company across the river. Um, but then he does say, like, but because they'll like because if you get more specific, they'll try to tell you the waterfront looks like the one in Newark, Bologna, or they'll say that the Italian delis in Queens, you can't tell the difference. I'm not interested. Pretty soon that deli in Queens, <laughs> pretty soon that deli in Queens turns into a funeral parlor, which turns into a school, which turns into something else. No way. So it's so funny that even to that point, they're like, oh, but it'd be so easy. We could just go shoot in front of the deli over here and no one's going to not know it's not in Jersey. But to him, he's like, no, uh, you could shoot in the studio or maybe you can use a parking lot. But once you start needing delis and storefronts and waterfronts, you better go to Jersey. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's kind of a similar, similar theme uh, because that was from the Soprano sessions, right? Um, that was actually just from a New York times article. Oh, okay. In March of 99, so it probably just says season one had ended, and people were just kind of like, oh, what is this show, this mob show that takes place in Jersey? Cool. Yeah, because here in the script book, he in the introduction, he talks about how the pilot was originally developed for Fox, was rejected, and then rejected by all the major networks. Uh, this turned out to be the best thing that could have happened because oh, there's no way that absolutely. the show we know would have wound up uh, on a screen of network television. And it wasn't the nudity, profanity, or violence that bothered the networks. It was the details, the complexity, the different pacing. I also believe that often network television is about people saying exactly what's on their minds, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is great. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, a few other things in here. He talks about different parts of the prep work. He talks about the A, B, and C stories and how many beats go into a script, that sort of thing. 
Um, but yeah, it's really just a few pages at the start that set set sort of the tone before you get into the meat and potatoes of the book, which is um, the actual script. So maybe we should start getting into some of the details of the episode. Like, yeah. honestly, most of it's quite small in that, like the first scene with Melfi, there might be stage direction that's like... Uh, when Melfi's like, you don't agree that you have a panic attack, it says, he laughs too loud. But in the show, that's actually more like an exhalation. There's no laugh at all. It's just kind of a sigh. Mm. Um, and then when she asks, what line of work are you in? He says, waste management consultant. And then they move on and say, any thoughts on why you blacked out? Uh, but in the actual uh, final version, he, there's an extra insert of a line there where he says, look, it's impossible for me to talk to a psychotherapist. Yeah. And that's kind of, you You get when you go through, and this was, honestly, reading it was good, but it was mostly when I read it again and had the show playing where I noticed all these little things. And you, it's really a fascinating feeling when you see the reason they made the changes. Um, like in this example where he says, look, it's impossible for me to talk to a psychotherapist. It's just kind of setting up a mystery, right? A bit of a question. Like probably if you're watching the pilot, you know the concept, but it's kind of hinting at something beyond what they're talking about mm. because like there's bits like that coming up later uh, later as well where you know there's a, a similar scene in one of the cutaways to them sitting there talking where he says you know this isn't going to work i can't talk about my personal life and in the script melfi's like it's hard for everybody and tony's like you don't understand and then she he's she's like finish telling me about the day you collapsed and that middle bit where it's like you don't understand it's hard for everything everyone that's cut out because they kind of fill that function on the very first page instead by yeah. saying like i can't this isn't going to work you know well, what I love just in general about, I, and I, I guess I could be wrong, but I feel like uh, a show made today, at least my gut feeling tells me that it wouldn't start with him just going right into therapy. It would have all the buildup and then him going to therapy. I don't know why I feel that way, but I don't know. I, I was just kind of more taken from rewatching it that like, oh, I love that it does start with him in therapy and even though that leads to the voiceover and kind of like the flashback because him telling the story it's such a great way to do it uh and maybe it's just because i think how netflix shows stretch things out and make them like kind of boring for the most part i feel like if this was a netflix show now it they would think the mystery would be following this guy like look at this guy he's a regular guy and and I guess this, the way they do it now with him going into therapy, it is that. Like you said, they're, they're building the mystery that way as he's telling the story. But I think they would want to show him as just a suburban guy who likes ducks or whatever that's under pressure. And then they'd slowly start to reveal he's in the mob and then have the mob stuff play out, then have him collapse, then bring in the therapy. Like they would wait longer for it for some reason. And again, I, based off nothing, that's just how my feeling is based off shows I've watched recently. That feels like what they would do. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I was like, well, that's kind of like... We're oversimplifying a bit, Jim, but then as you're describing it, I'm like, that is what I feel like <laughs> would happen also, though. It's kind of all about how... Good. well how interesting of a story structure are you building like the, to me it's more interesting to start it well i think to most people uh who like the sopranos this is a great way to start it and you're just in a room and it kind of sets that this is the base uh, basis of what the show is going to be about it's not just 
well, I don't know how clear it is in the pilot, but it's not just a mobster and we use the therapy scenes for voiceover. It's also, as you can see by the end of the episode, about the feelings and family and complexity that comes with that. Mm, absolutely. Um, so moving through the script, uh, there's a few like added lines here and there, some of which might be ad-libbed, uh, some of which are probably added very intentionally. So uh, when Carmilla's looking out uh, at him with the ducks, he says, him with those ducks, you know, <laughs> just a little little line, but also like when they're chasing down, uh, what is it, Mah- Mahaffey? Um, what's his name? Yeah, Mahaffey. Uh, when they're chasing him down with the car, <laughs> you just kind of hear Tony going like, my friend Mahaffey pulling his taffy, like doing a little song. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's not yeah, in the yeah. script, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a... Actually, on that as well, after they um, run him down, basically, beat him up and all of that, and Tony's like, what are you crying about? You're covered, like pointing at the HMO sign. Mm. And then there's a, a tiny scene of them back in the car where Tony's massaging his knuckles as they get going. And Christopher's like, what are you talking about? What, what are you thinking about? And Tony's like, HMOs. And Christopher's like, homos? <laughs> and Tony's like, HMO, HMO, it's a medical care provider. Read the fucking paper once in a while, Christopher. This scene was cut. It's kind of a shoe leather scene, like kind of a transporting scene. But the reason it's in there is to build to later when, when Tony figures point. out how to do the scam with like medical stuff. But kind of by cutting that fat you have him appear even smarter yes. in that if you have this scene, you know something else is going to come from it because, well, maybe you don't know, but it feels like it's this is a setup, like it's purely setting something up for later, whereas he can do that scene later with, and we can cut this out and it works just as well, you know? Well, because it's also better in my mind for him to get the idea from his panic attack and it mm. shows oh, that yeah. Good point. it shows his cunning and like, his like criminal mind it's even working when he's getting an mri and he, i mean when we see him on the mri table and he is scared and he's doing the thing that carmilla's rolling her eyes at uh and saying that he's gonna go to hell or whatever but it's just it's better that he kind of goes through all that and then he's like hmm two thousand dollars a pop you say huh and i also beat that guy up in front of an hmo these could work together <laughs> yes absolutely um Let's see, moving on to later. Like I said, there's a few things that feel a bit more subtle. So when they arrive in Artie's restaurant, the stage direction says, Charmaine, Arthur's wife, watches sourly from the cash register. Tony blows her a kiss. He and Christopher sit in a prime booth. And like Tony doesn't blow her a kiss. I don't think he even sees her there, but Mm. you can just see her notice him and kind of go like, oh, and like head off. So that's really all you need from that interaction. Um, I also, this is not important, but I wanted you to know that the, the uh, famous line of Uncle Junior told our girl cousins, I would never be a varsity athlete. It has a slight difference in the script in that it's then is supposed to be, I found out he'd said that. And frankly, it was a tremendous blow to my self-esteem. They just kind of reworded re-worded it. So it. it's not, I found out he'd said that because it's not relevant. <laughs> yeah. All right. But I love that. I, I mean, such a great line, such a great, I mean, uh, obviously the show made it even better because it comes up later but it's so classic yes um moving on to kind of uh aj's birthday shindig 
Uh, when that's being set up, we have a bit more happening at the start there. So we've cut out the start of that scene. You can actually, I could kind of tell watching it that they were, they had a voiceover and they faded in on a scene and there was a little bit of scene before then that they didn't use. It's not very important. Um, but the stage direction is, Carmilla has generated an astounding array of food, yet she still looks, as Christopher once remarked, eminently fuckable <laughs> which i just thought was a great description and then it's just kind of isn't he more related to carmilla than he is tony <laughs> oh yeah that's you i mean i'm sure point. at that point at that point maybe they hadn't worked out those yeah. details but that's that's fun to think about yeah that's a good point <laughs> um but yeah so father phil is there and like basically there's it's just a tiny bit of a scene that they cut and then they smooth into that scene instead with a voiceover that's kind of like my my wife's always inviting the priest around mm. you know like it kind of jump starts the scene with anthony jr coming over almost immediately with the phone and like oh you know grandma's not coming instead of having a little bit before then it just immediately gets to it yeah yeah and that's kind of i'm sure that well, it comes down to it works better, but also it's very like you were talking about how they were trying to get it to that like fifty nine, fifty nine, or that one hour point to trim whatever they could. Yeah, um, and then this is just a bit of stage direction that I liked when he is getting the MRI. The description is the magnetic oracle hums. Tony lies alone and naked on a tray, about to be served to the machine. Mm. I like that. <laughs> I mean, that's and what's really smart with that type of stuff is obvious. I mean, it shows that he's a great writer, but I mean, they always talk about, at least from my outsider's perspective, that you want your scripts to pop a bit because script readers read what fucking 10 scripts a day, even more, maybe like people are just flipping through scripts and you want memorable shit like that in there. You want someone to be like, oh, wow, this is exciting. So. Yeah, uh, I love I love to hear that. And you have so few words to work with. You have to make them really evocative and like mm. paint an image with, uh, but also describe something so concretely <laughs> that someone who's putting together the scene doesn't have trouble understanding what you're trying to communicate. I so I have I, I as I'm sure I've mentioned I have a degree in writing for film and television, and I find it so interesting that the what they taught us was to be very concrete and factual. Like yeah. my teacher would not have liked this stuff, but it's also what I see in all the scripts basically. But I think maybe that was more coming from like a um, sitcom writing style, you know, where it's more like it's a fucking shooting list of like, here's what's going to happen. It's a multi-camera setup. Like, cause that would be, would have been the experience of at least the teacher I'm thinking of. So maybe that's why it's more like that. Whereas for a feature film or something like this, it's a bit more higher budget. And also, so you have a bit of leeway to describe things in, in this way that, you know, you haven't sold the show yet. You have to yeah. sell it on the page every, with every line, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like, Shane Black is, like, famous for stuff like that. Shane Black wrote, like, Lethal Weapon, um, and he worked, like, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But a lot of his scripts have stuff where it's like, and then the fucking action kicks in. <laughs> like, the most <laughs> explosive shit you've ever fucking seen happens. Like, it gets like that. Uh, and but, yeah. yeah, I feel like sometimes, because I, I, I listen to, uh, I forget the name of that podcast where they do, like, Dead dead Pilot Society. They re do readings of pilots of sitcoms that, or comedy shows that haven't happened. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like people are writing for a table read more than they're writing a show, uh, you know, when it, when it gets into that level. But, yeah, it's good stuff anyway um 
Another thing where I think a scene cut off earlier than the script intended is when Chris kills uh, email, as he calls him. In the script, it's written out like email is his name and he keeps correcting him, but he kills him in the butcher shop. And so the way it's uh, described here is when when Kolar is going to do the cocaine, it says Kolar takes the straw, leans over to dose. Christopher places a Glock 9mm to the back of his head and fires. Kolar sprawls forward onto the butcher block. Christopher fires three more times. One of the severed lamb's heads appears to be watching. Christopher addresses it. Christopher, can you see him yet? Has he arrived where you are? (laughs) Oh, wow. that's kind of a shit line yeah. <laughs> or like it's it's a it's a weird one for sure so what we get in the actual episode as he's shooting him we cut to these black and white photos mm. um during it but there are these pigs heads behind him now what we get instead which is kind of great is like him just looking up after he kills him and just seeing all the pigs heads and kind of meeting the eyes of one i can only imagine this is in this is the shooting script so they would have shot him saying that afterwards but it's probably, I mean, it's it's not the best line. Yeah. It's it kind of shows how he's kind of fucked, uh, maybe on drugs or whatever, or he's just seems dumb from it. Like it's kind of like overly poetic or whatever in in my view. But what we get is just this glance uh, that works really well. Yeah, that's that's they probably did shoot it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's see. Just flipping through. So when. When Meadow, um, when Meadow's caught trying to sneak back into the house, you know, um, Father Phil is there because they're watching movies. In the script, he's also with them when they're outside, whereas in the show, he's not there. And he's just kind of doing some lines like, uh, guys, let's dial down the casting stones a few notches. Oh. Uh, but he's just kind of not in that part of the scene, um, presumably because it's not super important um not to to back up a little bit and this is such a dumb question but i gotta ask it does the script have this is probably within the first few pages when meadow and um what's her face uh uh, hunter yeah meadow and hunter they're talking about aspen and hunter's Mm -hmm. like well, I was in Aspen and I saw Skeet Ulrich. Is that in the script? Is Skeet Ulrich's name in the script? Because <laughs> to uh, me, it always stood out as such a weird, <laughs> such a weird, like, I guess, heartthrob. But then again, maybe that makes it more believable because he's not like, I mean, he's a star. He's in Scream. He was in the Scream movie, which was only a few years before this. But I don't know. I, it is. It is in here. So uh, <laughs> Skeet Ulrich <laughs> is in the script. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's exactly, or yeah, exactly the same as in the show. Last year at Aspen, I saw Skeet Ulrich as close as from where you're sitting. Oh wow! And Meadow says, Meadow says, "Oh my God!" But it's w- written like O M I G O D as one word. <laughs> wow! I wonder if, because to me, I was like, I wonder if Hunter, because Hunter is played by his daughter. I was wondering, did she give that note or no? Maybe just uh, Chase is a big fan of Skeet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is certainly a possibility. And on the Aspen subplot, I will I will come back to it in a second when we talk about cutscenes. But that that plot line is kind of it goes on a bit more in the script. But they kind of just ended it where they ended it, and it's interesting because I feel like 
in sort of a relationship with a teenager or whatever, there's this frustration and then it just kind of peters out yeah or it you know then you'd get on with life whereas in this it's kind of got a more of a neat bow at the end of the whole storyline with uh uh carmela and meadow um but we'll get to it in a second okay um i did want to mention as well when herman uh well well when hesh is talking to tony um at one point they're talking about the fact that junior wants to kill little pussy and Herman says, or Hash, sorry, it's just Herman in the script, uh, says he registered the beef with New York, question mark. And Tony says he's got their okay on the hit. So this is just saying that Junior got an okay from New York to kill this person. Yeah. And I, it's interesting that it, they cut it out. It's probably because the world we're presented with is so complex that starting to reference like yeah. what New York is in the first episode is just not relevant then you're going to start thinking about that like the I, I feel like lines exactly like this appear you know a few episodes later as we start to understand the world a bit more which is great because uh it's just a thing that follows the show uh through the whole run because chase was like always uh like almost dragged kicking and screaming to make New York a thing. He was never like, we as the audience were like, oh, the war with New York, fuck, that's going to go down. And then Chase was like, no, no, it ain't. I don't care. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so just flipping through some stuff. Uh, I like the description where uh, Big Pussy and Christopher are dumping the body. The The stage direction or the description is just, when they're trying to throw it into the container, they let the body go, but it doesn't achieve the 12 vertical feet needed to go into the open top <laughs> container because they just throw it into the container, right? Yeah. And then they're like, ah, fuck this. Which <laughs> that's good stuff. Well, that's great because I forget where I saw this, but I feel like I've seen this a few times where people try to say that was improv. And it's like, how the fuck could it be improv? Because they clearly Which were never. Part? Like that they couldn't throw the, it in the dumpster because it's like they never. That's, that's or, right, right there in the script. We have it in black and white. It's not improv. I knew it had to have been. I, I, I don't. I, I'm sure it was just a site trying to make clickbait or something because it's like that would make no sense because there was never a, uh, an idea that they were going to get it into that big dumpster, and that's the joke. The joke is that they just throw it into the wall of it. Yeah. Um. On the a later scene, the one where um where Melfi runs into Tony at a restaurant. She's out on a date with Nils, um, and they can't get a table. Um, I like the description of, she watches. She watched her date Nils whimper to the hostess, and then when she tells him, you know, there's five parties ahead of you, it just says, he folds up meekly, struggles back to Melfi. Like, just <laughs> emasculating description of this. Um, but the only real change in this scene is also, like I said, with the subtlety, at the end there, they get a table uh, because Tony just says a word. And then it says, Melfi looks to where Tony's in conversation with the woman. She nods a thank you. He winks. Neither of those things happen uh, because I think it's a it's a... It's not really necessary. And yeah. I think she, they realize that she probably feels more complex about the fact that a mobster is giving her favors. Like, as they got into the making of it, they can just have it be a thing that happens rather than have her go, like, I like that this happened. Yeah, it just makes it, like, it's already understood. You kind of don't need to do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I feel like we're, uh, I don't want to bore you with every single difference, but well, there is, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, you say your thing first. 
Yeah, I was just going to say on a slightly later scene, right, the one where Tony reveals to Carmela that uh, he's going to therapy, which is a great scene overall, right? It cuts off a little bit earlier than than it actually, uh, well, than in the uh, live version, the the show. Yeah. Um, at the end there, you know, they're talking, they, they circle back around to talking about Meadow. Carm- this is after she's been rejected not doing their yearly tradition of going for tea with their white gloves. And Carmilla's like, she broke my heart. We were best friends. Tony says, girls and their mothers, she'll come back to you. I think this is where the scene ends in the show. It just continues a little bit um, with Carmilla saying, but who knows if she'll ever get to go to Aspen again. And then, so that's a bit bit of a weird line in where Mm. we're at in the episode. And then Tony says, this is really interesting. Tony says, she should have thought about that before she stiffed us on the money. And then he shakes cobwebs and he says, I mean, before she broke curfew. And then he pauses and says, see, what's happening to my mind? Um, And that's the end of the scene. So it's quite interesting. Like they were trying to show a weird, like fractured confusion where he was like his his other family life was bleeding into. Okay, that's weird. I wonder if maybe they thought they were going to explore some sort of weird dementia thing or something. I think it's, yeah, just kind of, you know, how he sometimes have scenes where he's kind of blinking and like shaking out of something. But yeah, yeah like mixing them up. I think it's, I think they were going for something more subtle of like, or like him, his anger from, yeah, uh, the one family bleeding into the other. But I think the way it comes off, at least reading it, is more like setting up that he's going to have dementia. This is the sort of thing Junior does something slightly weird and then a few episodes later something happens with that. So or and this is also when he's just started taking Prozac as well. Maybe it's implying uh, that there yeah. are side effects. Um like but they don't confusion. follow up on that really. So Well, that's yeah. good. Uh and actually the question I had was around this scene anyways. I'm sure it is in the st- script, but I just wanted to verify when he says Hannibal Lecture uh instead of like Hannibal Lecter where what is the line because it's like this is oh yeah yeah no sorry i found it already (laughs) yeah i can confirm uh you'd think i was hannibal lecture and it (laughs) is a lecture it's so so. great i because i mean that's a running thing in the in the show where people say things a little wrong and it's you don't even really most people i imagine you couldn't even catch it sometimes but it's so funny when it happens uh yeah so i get to see that that's verified um was there one other thing? Let me see. Uh, ba, ba, ba. Well, actually, I did want to comment that, yeah, the the tea under Eloise's portrait of Plaza, that, that is a thing that comes up again at least one time. I think it might even come up again later um, but, uh, as far as like a Carmel- Carmela Meadow thing. Oh, and this is not really related to the script, but uh, re-watching it, I think we're people are missing out off of, I mean, Everyone hates AJ. This show is very pro AJ. If you've listened to our discussions, we've defended the character. But rewatching yeah. the pilot, I realized, like, forget all the other stuff. Forget the ducks. Forget the, the stress. AJ's birthday is the thing that put Tony over the edge. That's ground zero, my dude. That's what, <laughs> that's what started it all. It was the fucking AJ's birthday. That's why people hate him. Now I get it. Yeah, it's true. Tony would have been fine if he just didn't have to deal with the stressful <laughs> yeah. children's birthday, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So do you want to get into something? You said there's some cutscenes, right? Yes, I think we're getting to like towards it. The cutscenes are towards the end. What I noticed is like halfway through the script, there's a few <clears throat> scenes that are rearranged, uh, but not cut, like just kind of 
placed around. Um, but getting to the actual cuts, yeah, there's a scene in Melfi's office where they're in therapy that is cut. Uh, to my knowledge, it's completely cut. And then there's another scene with Meadow. So let me actually just read them to you because I think it'll be interesting. Um, so interior Dr. Melfi's office day. Tony is in therapy, seated in the chair facing Melfi. And he's starting in the middle of a conversation here. Tony, like during Gotti's trial uh, a couple of years ago, I said to my mother, Melfi, could I interrupt you a second? Shifts, ner shifts weight nervously. Am I, you know, okay hearing this? Tony, what? Oh, Gotti? Is that how you say Gotti? <laughs> yeah, no, you got it. Okay. Uh, what? Oh, Gotti? It worries you? Melfi, yes, but I'm a doctor. It's my job to treat. Tony, us being compare... Oh, compare, maybe? Uh, mm. Melfi, being Italian is irrelevant. I run a psychiatric practice, not a Zeppola stand at the feast of San, <laughs> San Gennaro. Yeah. San Gennaro, yeah. He shrugs. Melfi continued, you were telling me uh, how when John Gotti was sent to prison, you went into a profound feeling of despair and you said something to your mother. Tony, I don't think so. I don't think I was talking about my mother. I was talking about that cocksuck motherfucker Rudy Giuliani <laughs> yeah. and how he's ruined things for a lot of people. Melfi, is there someone in your early life who raises the same fear and control issues and, as Mayor Giuliani? He doesn't want to answer. Tony, well, look at the clock. Hour is up. Melfi, you can answer the question. Suddenly, he stands. He goes to her, leans down, moves her hair aside, and softly kisses her neck. Huh. Melfi. Mm-hmm. Melfi, uh, that's outside the boundaries of what we do here. Tony, you're the most fantastic woman I've ever seen. Melfi, I'm not going to kick you out of therapy, so stop trying. Tony studies her, impressed. And that's the end of the scene. Huh. I mean, they do use that later, right? Because I do remember him doing that, like getting up, and I think he like kisses her. Might even kiss her on the lips or something. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's it. So I, I, the book comes with some production photos as well so here's a an omitted ah. a, a still of this omitted scene but it is that's what i was referring to that like later on they're kind of rushing it a bit i think you know yeah. when writing the pilot they're getting all this stuff in that actually needs a bit a lot more like groundwork to to work up to this type of scene it's also kind of like the rest of it is just her trying to get him to talk about his mother and he doesn't want to talk about his mother. Mm. This is already happening kind of in, in other scenes and it's not super relevant and there's loads of space to explore that elsewhere. But yeah, it just is very sudden and they haven't had that intimate connection. But this is it. They It feels like there are more therapy sessions throughout the episode and they've kind of been combined or simplified a little bit to, so that we can follow it. Well, what's interesting as well is because, I mean, I don't know where that's placed. It must be placed. This is after Gary Cooper, The Strong Silent Type, I imagine, right? Oh, yeah. This is, yeah. Uh, let me double check. This is the last scene between, well, is this right? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's 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 a scene that comes after the, it's the last scene between Melfi and Tony. So it's ah, okay. after the significant breakthrough with the ducks and all of that. Ah, which okay. is interesting. Well, because that's obviously the last scene of therapy we get in the episode. Well, because it also it feels like if he's talking about Rico again and Giuliani and shit, like it's kind of is almost uh, the covering the same territory as um, because like I mean he talks about Gary Cooper the strong silent type, but he's also like 
I think that's when he talks about Rico, like, and they have that joke of like, oh, is that a cousin of yours or whatever? Yeah. And then he mentions, yeah, yeah. semester and a half. But like when he gets more, I, what I never really noticed before in that scene is because he's getting more into, yeah, like specific mafia business a bit. And then he gets into, yeah, of course, like the being the strong silent type and being a semester and a half of college. And and she, like, weirdly enough, doesn't address anything because that's when she just goes, do you feel depressed? Uh, and then he, she, like, he doesn't really answer. And she's like, well, in this the age of pharmacology and she just immediately goes into the like the prozac and it's almost a weird like i don't even want to talk anymore i'm just going to give you drugs and i know that's something like they kind of explore later in the show of like is talk therapy helping or are they just trying to prescribe you drugs to shut you up but it just struck me as a little bit more interesting this time when i was re-watching it uh that she kind of is almost like immediately turned off by what he's talking about and just gives him a prescription. Interesting. Yeah. I'm trying to organize it in my head because that's not the Gary Cooper scene, right? That doesn't end with the prescription. Oh, maybe my uh, notes are wrong, but I think actually, you know what? No, the prescription ends with the Rico. Here comes the Prozac because that's after uh, he's talking about his business woes, right? Yeah. Uh, what scenes are around then, more or less? I'm just trying to find it here. Or how far through the episode is it? Uh, it's pretty far. Let me double check on my end as well. Hold on. Because we have, yeah, the, the Gary Cooper kind of rant. Um, but there, her question of, like, do you feel depressed makes sense because that's already, she's trying to get him to open up about things. And this might actually... Yeah, you know what? I think I'm reading my notes wrong. I think I actually just had okay. it later. Uh, my thing is more so she does the Prozac thing after he's talking about Rico because that is a separate... That is like a separate yes. discussion. Yeah. So when he's getting more into kind of specifics where they're not as dancing around it as much, uh, like the mafia thing, because usually it's where she's like, let me stop you right there, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm a doctor... Um, let me see here, here we find it here uh, yeah I found the scene here as well cause this yeah this when he starts off about uh, his father um, and I'm finding much of the satisfaction gone from my work too cause of Rico uh, is he your brother the statutes and then like they have the little the joke you read the papers the justice department's using Rico and the legal strategies electronic technology and then he's talking about how people are flipping like they're not doing their time and that's yeah that's when she's just like i see and then she's like well uh you know with today's pharmacology no one needs to suffer with feelings of exhaustion or depression and then that's where she i i'm sorry i mixed up my notes but her reply okay. to when he's getting into just mafia stuff is like i'm not even going to talk about this i'm just going to give you a prescription I think, yeah, I think what I see from the script anyway is that she, it, we even have a bit of uh, parenthetical uh, direction here in the script. So when Melfi asks, Melfi asks, do you ever feel any qualms about how you actually make your living? And it's like, that's a line delivered, sadly, according to this. And then Tony does his thing about, I find I have to be the sad clown upbeat on the outside Things are trending down, downward. Used to be guy got pinched. He took his prison job no matter what. Everybody upheld the code of silence. Nowadays, no values. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you get 
everyone turning government whisk, uh, witness. I get exhausted just talking about it. Um, so it's and it, then it, when she says, "I see," it kind of says stymied um, ah, okay. from from her. So I think what she's trying to do is get him to talk about the inherently violent nature of his work and how that could be affecting him or the fact that he does something that would be viewed as by society as bad and like what that means for his psychology and he's like you know what you're right i would like to talk about how everybody's just <laughs> gonna be a government witness yeah. so there's a disconnect there so uh yeah i don't know it, it definitely i can see how it comes off with her just going like uh let's just get some prozac and see yeah. how we go but at least this isn't like their first meeting i would assume that she's done a more ethical assessment of whether he needs it or not uh up to that point <laughs> And then uh, uh, jumping up to the uh, the ducks revelation, um, it's funny. I mean, it's such a great piece of writing because it's a goof. Like the dream story is a goof. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. then it it's it's so hard to take a goof and then flip it by the end of the scene and make it a, an important and feel like an important breakthrough. It's also hilarious to think because. You know, the Sopranos love to get into showing the dreams. And obviously, you're not mm. going to show this dream of his dick falling <laughs> off when he unscrews his belly button or whatever. Uh, so I, I, it's just fun looking at it uh, from the point of view of the show where they have the weird moments where they would actually sit in these dreams for a while, whether you, for, for whether you think that's a, to the benefit or not. Um, but also, I just admire the fact that you could take this kind of funny, funny silly thing but then make it into like by the end of the scene an important like breakthrough. Yeah, and there's a slight uh, edit or a thing that's removed from the script for this scene. So he describes the dream. Melfi asks what kind of bird they figure out that it's ducks. Tony's like the ducks, those damn ducks. Yeah. That iconic line. Yeah. Um, and Melfi asks, what was it about those ducks that meant so much to you? And in the show, it goes on with him saying, you know, it was a trip having those wild creatures come into his pool to have their babies. In the script before then, he tries to kind of make light of it again uh, in a way that is very characteristic of Tony Soprano. But I think what they did in this flow of the scene in the show is that once he gets to like those damn ducks, mm -hmm. that's the, he is like too deep in it then to be making jokes, but, and it's not the best joke either. So it's like, Melfi says, what is, was it about those ducks that meant so much to you? Tony says, did you know the word for duck in Italian is anatra? So Sinatra probably means without ducks. Oh, and then oh. Melfi says, is that why you blacked out Ducks and Sinatra? And then Tony Sheepish, no. <laughs> and then we get to, I don't know, it was just a trip having those wild creatures come into my pool. So it's just kind of puncturing the buildup of the scene to an extent. So I don't know if they removed that on like in the edit or before then. Like It would make yeah. sense if this was one of those, rather than an edit, they're like, hey, we can't have a joke here because of the dramatic flow of the scene. Yeah, you could. I could even see, again, this is just hearsay or just guesswork but i could even see you know gandolfini getting in on that discussion on where he wanted to go with it uh and how his performance was going to be and he's like yeah i don't think i would be making a joke here i'm i'm more i'm going to be emotional so yeah it's interesting to kind of think about like where that comes yeah in. like I if they <laughs> shot it and they just edited it out or yeah it was just this discussion they had on the day I did want to mention as well, this is from the introduction, but uh, David Chase references prep meetings. Um, 
let's see, talks about prep requires eight days. Uh, before shooting begins, we meet with the director and we discuss the meaning of every scene, both what's apparent and what's unspoken, the essence of the overall story and how to best interpret this vision. This is called a tone meeting, and it invariably sucks. It's long and tedious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but uh, like reading it, a lot of this is kind of like bare bones stuff, which is great because it's very uh, like you you pack a lot of story into these pages. But I could also see how each scene kind of needs that tone meeting as well for the director to understand what we're actually going for with all of these, and maybe that's uh, at the level that they figured out. Uh, hey, this this scene, uh, we can't really have a joke here, or as you said, potentially even Gandolfini. What I what I love though about even like at the beginning going through Chase's kind of intro, or even like some side comments like that, I'm sure his feelings aren't that much different. But it's better that that's a book that came out in 2001, where yeah, Sopranos was like a hit, but he probably still didn't even imagine how big of a hit he had on his hands and where things were going it's one thing to be able to read the soprano sessions and like current interviews with him like looking back on it but when he's there in the thick of it uh that's that's an interesting point of view yeah for sure let me get to the second of the two cut scenes here so uh to give you the context this is after meadow has been to the church and it's after kind of most of the arguments with her mother and all of that. But I think the church is the thing that's made a change happen in Meadow in this version. Uh, in the episode, I, we just kind of see her take it all in in the church. And it is significant, but it doesn't like lead to something directly after that. Whereas I think this is what we lead up to. So it's when they're like right before the party's starting. And so we hear... First in the backyard, there's a barbecue grill, steaks and sausages, his and sizzle, his and sizzle. Tony sips a beer, tends a steak. He looks towards the house where guests starting to arrive. The fire belches smoke and exterior, cathedral, day, skewed low angle. More smoke. The church's twin spires jab at a lowering sky. Meadow is being burnt at the stake. Hooded medieval figures toss wood on the fire. She shouts at the le leaden sky with a crazed smile the wind and flames lashing her face meadow yes yes oh wow what the fuck is this scene jim what is that <laughs> yeah so um first i was like okay tony's worried about losing his family but no what we actually have is the very next scene interior soprano house meadow's room day meadow's face is aglow with fantasy she swigs coffee writes furiously in her journal knock Carmela peeks in. Carmela, guests are guests are arriving and the table isn't set. Notes, how many cups of coffee have you had? Meadow, writing, be right there. Carmela hesitates a second, then holds out new ski boots. Meadow, mm. you mean I can go to Aspen? Carmela, Christmas break is just that, a break. When you get back to school, you'll really apply yourself. Meadow, speeding. Uh, I was just thinking I probably shouldn't go so close to finals. Carmilla, thrown. Excuse me? Meadow, urgent. I was just writing in my journal how somebody in this family has to do something. Carmilla, well, about what? Meadow, perfection. Earthly perfection. It's a soprano tradition. Carmilla, beat. Is it? Or it is? Uh, Meadow, I may become a nun. I have to look up our family motto. I think the web has a genealogy bulletin board. She Oof. starts scribbling again. 
Carmilla stares, pole axed. She leaves the room in a fog. That's huh. the scene. Huh. Yeah, and I get. Uh, hmm. Thinking about that, well, I guess The Sopranos was initially going to be a film, right? Like Chase wanted it to be a movie rather than a mm. TV show, um, because that feels like, yeah, like a furious attempt at trying to wrap up that plot line, like as yeah. as if it as if like we're never going to get anything again. And we need some sort of climax. Uh, and in a weird way, it's fun to think of that as like almost an early version of the cut to black <laughs> in a lot of ways, where it just shows like kind of the, um, like the the tendency of David Chase, because I I almost thought where that was gonna go was like yeah, because I mean we have it. We, I guess we're to assume that that's Meadow, like her burnt at the pyre is what she's writing about. And I almost thought they were going with an angle of like some of this discipline is starting to sink in, but then Carmela's going to come in and ruin it because she just lets her go. And mm. then Meadow ends up learning nothing because <laughs> Carmela couldn't help but give in. But then it kind of goes in more where Meadow's like, no, I'm going to maybe be a nun. Do all like that's really bizarre, but also interesting, and like I, I, I can't really gauge what we're what we were supposed to take from that. But like, what a what a uh, bonkers thing to have in a pilot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's what David J said in the intro. Uh, he called it the Meadow um, Martyr scene, and that it just didn't work. You yeah. know, like it, it just didn't work. And you did. Sometimes you don't know. This is what I have experienced uh, just writing <clears throat> short films. I'm sure the same for you. Like you put something on a page, you think it's gonna work. Sometimes things just don't work, yeah. and this was uh, one of them. But the great thing about the pilot is. We're setting these things up. Like I was saying before, we don't need a neat bow where we resolve Carmela and Meadows' whole relationship in episode one. Just like mm. you were saying, in a feature film, maybe yes. And David Chase did say in the intro as well, he wants all the episodes, as far as is possible, to stand uh, on their own uh, independently. And like, uh, college is in this. And he said college is the one that achieves it the best right because yeah. basically it only has two storylines as opposed to a bunch of different storylines and that's self-contained and you know you tell the whole story but that does it does feel like you said like a frantic kind of wrapping up in the same way that meadow is frantic here um but yeah very interesting for sure and i'm glad they cut it and i mean uh, the the standalone episode we've mentioned it before it's such a lost art like it's i mean i, I guess people look down upon it because it's like thought of as a sitcom-y thing but i think these dramas are really missing the art of a standalone episode don't get me wrong i love a nice serialized show and an epic story but uh, we're losing out we're missing out people we've uh we talked about the episode for again longer than the episode actually yeah. is it's what we like to do here at cut to black but i did want to call out one additional difference in the next to last scene where junior is driving livia to the party really interesting cut it's only a small thing that they've changed but really interesting so um basically they this is when livia is talking about you know uh 
talking about uh, John and Junior's like, well, my brother John was a man among men and Livia dabbing tears. He was a saint. Junior winks. Hey, if he could steal you away from me, he must have been something. Mm. And then somberly, he says, anyway, lots of things are different now from Johnny's and my day. They cut that line. So we go from he was a saint to anyway, lots of things are different now uh, from Johnny and my day. It's really interesting because that line, uh, it that's not canon to my knowledge that they were ever a thing. Um, but what they're doing there is kind of setting up the dynamic that develops throughout the first season between the two of them. And this is kind of a shortcut to get there faster, right? Yeah. It's saying they have this history and it's kind of a reveal, you know, between these two characters in the first episode, like, oh, they have all this history that we're going to learn about or whatever. But they let that develop naturally instead instead of having it be like we have an unknown history that we're gonna wink at you about you know yeah no it's a better choice uh, I mean, and i imagine it seems like something they probably did shoot and then they just yeah cut i'd say it, so whether it be and maybe it was even something they were like ah we need to cut eight seconds cut it <laughs> yeah yeah because the, the direction here is also the saying the junior winks and i feel like there's like three or four winks that have been cut out of this uh just this pilot <laughs> Huh. But uh, yeah, there you are. We've done the pilot comparison from uh, script to screen. And uh, the last thing I wanted to read from this book, at least we'll, we'll see if we go back for any of the other episodes. I mean, college is a, a favorite, obviously. It'd be interesting to see, are there any differences between the two there? But for now, anyway, uh, from the intro, this is just David Chase talking about the show in general. He says, what Tony Soprano shows, I guess, is that rarely is anything black and white in life. Life is difficult, messy, disappointing. Things don't work out the way we'd like. Our kids make bad choices. Our parents are a burden. Our friends disappoint and betray us. In that sense, I hope uh, it's something similar to the foreign films I loved as a young adult for their ideas, their mystery, and their ambiguity for not having the endless spelled out or telling the audience what to think or feel. What I love most when I'm watching something is a feeling of strangeness, suspense, poetry, things happening that you can't predict. I hope we've achieved that with The Sopranos. Mm. And you did And I spades. think they did. In spades. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's uh, our breakdown. Any other thoughts you didn't have time to get to in regards to the pilot just generally and and the rewatch uh well i mean one thing i was gonna say i meant to say at the beginning is uh this is just dangerous it's dangerous because as soon as i turned on this episode this morning <laughs> and the fucking theme song was playing i was like oh my god do i want to fucking rewatch the sopranos and i do mm -hmm. i do want to rewatch. i don't know if i actually will or not but I was like, oh, wow, I've missed this because I, I haven't really watched anything since we finished our discussion a while back. Wow. Uh, and I was like, oh, because part of me was like, ah, the pilot. I've seen it so many times. Like, I've probably seen it the most because I've done other attempted rewatches, but maybe I didn't finish it. But I've seen the pilot mm -hmm. so many times. But watching it again, it because I, I, I was kind of thinking like, oh. It might be like a bore a little bit just because I've seen I'm so familiar with it. There's so many like I'm watching it and I'll I, I'm even doing the the Gandolfini moves where he's like you know um, now that my dad's dead he's a saint when he was alive and he does this thing 
Like yes. The, Eight, but I'm, so for the podcast, like the yeah, hand on the chin, the hand like, on the chin, oh, like I like, mean something. I'm doing that it's with funky. him and like kind of saying the lines with him. But I'm still, uh, I'm still like a Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> show. Yeah. But I'm still well invested. And uh, did you shout? So what? No fucking Z. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, and and actually, and the other thing of like how much this tackles, like even the the bit with uh, Christopher at the end, where he mentions like the Hollywood um, uh, agent, and you know, never mind just the episode where we kind of meet the D girl. Like it's obvious, it's clearly a running thing with Christopher. Um, so yeah, just so much, so much. Like I guess it just goes back to what Chase was already saying of how he had this, like such a great cr- grasp on the characters where even if they didn't know the specifics they were going with, there's so much that's already there to mine and play with. And it's all right there in the pilot. So uh, really, really like enlightening, uh, even though we discussed this two times already, like just thinking of it in that respect, uh, much more respect for this episode than I even had before. So, very cool. Yeah, for sure. And on the rewatch, yeah, do it. I'm on season five. There's no reason not to, Jim. <laughs> yeah. There's no reason not to. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm on my si- uh, my first rewatch, I guess, second watch of the the show. And yeah, just the intro, just it's just like coming home. Honestly, yeah. it's a great time for sure. Um, but yeah, let us know if this was interesting to you. If you want to see us uh, break down additional episodes uh, or anything like that, you can, of course, always contact us on the, um, our email address, showswhatyouknowshow at gmail.com. You can tweet at us uh, at showswhatyouknow, the letter U, where you'll also see uh, pictures of me finding various weird Sopranos-related <laughs> things in dusty charity shops in Dublin. So it's worth a follow for that alone. Uh, beyond that, all reviews are appreciated as always. And you know what? If you already left a review, tell a friend. Maybe yes. share it on Twitter. Uh, spread that love around. We we love having you with us. And um, I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll continue to invent relatively plausible reasons to keep talking about The Sopranos. For sure. Uh, I guess on that, there's just one uh, last thing to say. What's that? Cut to black. fist out of force of habit dude you were absolutely about to say strike first i knew you were and well even just doing the fist at the camera yes uh we were going 